0: How many, how many bishops does it take to change a light globe? Change? What about you? Do you? Which do you prefer? Do you like stability or do you like change? Which do you prefer? Well, it's an impossible question, isn't it? I mean, we all like change when we feel that it's an advantage to us. I think there's a saying in politics, oppositions don't win elections, incumbents lose them. And it's it's right, because it's not as though Australia swings back and forth between right-wing and left-wing convictions, but rather that when discontent rises... We get rid of one bunch of politicians in favor for an almost identical bunch simply because suddenly something's just got to change. But equally, we hate change. If we fear that it will disadvantage us, or more to the point, it will mean the end of an advantage over others that we feel entitled to. Out of fear of change, Charles Darwin delayed publishing his theory of evolution for decades. He was afraid that his new theory would be controversial, that it would create change. And actually, he was not fearful of any kind of theological controversy. Indeed, he was only vaguely aware that there might even be one. No, no, he was fearful of the political controversy that people might think him a revolutionary, a republican, a friend of democracy. Monarchy, the divine right to rule, and survival of the fittest don't really go well together. He was fearful of change. Change, stability, well... Today, we're continuing a series of sermons on Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. In other words, the final chapters of Luke's book of Acts. And today's reading kind of feels like deja vu, again. Because for the third time now, we read about Paul facing his accusers. The first time was back in chapter 23, when Paul was on trial... Before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, in front of the Jewish religious establishment, the Jewish religious elite. The second time was after his rescue and transfer to the coastal town of Caesarea in chapter 24. And so this is the third time. By now we're familiar with the drill. The Jewish religious establishment of Jerusalem, the high priests, the elders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, uh, the scribes. They want Paul dead at any cost. And they have accused him, therefore, of anything and everything in their attempt to bribe, trick, or cajole the Roman overlords into issuing what it is that they want, which is the death penalty for Paul. They have accused him of being an anti-Roman insurrectionist, a riot monger, and even someone who has desecrated the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And, of course, all of these accusations are false and baseless. We, the readers of luke 's book, we know this for sure because we 've traveled with Paul since his conversion all round the Western Mediterranean world, evangelizing, pastoring, church planting and we know that these accusations are, are, are without any base and false, and the Romans know it too, in the words of Gallio of uh, Corinth, Claudius Lysias in Jerusalem, and now Marcus Augustus Felix in Caesarea. They've all agreed this man has done nothing wrong that deserves death or punishment. And so now on this third occasion, Paul faces the same accusers with the same accusations again in Caesarea, but this time in front of the new Roman governor, Felix, Porcius, sorry, Festus, Porcius Festus. Now, Luke paints a consistent picture of these Roman authorities. They're nervous of the Jewish leadership, and actually, they ought to be. Um, The Jewish leadership, they they know how to ruin careers. They know how to ruin the careers of ambitious Roman governor's officials who cross them. Felix has gone home in disgrace. And they'll ruin Festus too if he's not careful. They're good at manipulating people. And these Romans, they aren't perfect. Every time we hear them talking to each other, they twist the facts so as to put themselves in the best possible light. But importantly, importantly, even in the face of intimidation, whether it be through flattery or slander, the Romans stick to their guns. They won't compromise Rome's honourable, ancient and praiseworthy traditions when it comes to the law. The burden of proof is on the accuser, not on the accused. No person is to be punished as guilty before they've had a chance to defend themselves. And a Roman citizen can always appeal to Caesar. That the Romans actually stick to their guns, even when under pressure, is ironic, given that the Jews have even higher standards when it comes to justice and the law, but they abandoned them in a blink in their desire to kill Paul. So then, we hear yet another courtroom drama. And this week, Paul does does appeal to Caesar. Um, This isn't an appeal in the contemporary sense. Today, a person can appeal either the finding of a court or the sentence of a court in order to go to a higher court if they believe that justice has not been done. No, in in Paul's day, a Roman citizen could appeal to Caesar at any time during legal proceedings. And this was an ancient form of appeal, giving all Roman citizens the right to be tried in Italy. Paul's never been to Italy, but he is a Roman citizen. And so he plays this card to save himself from this endless vacillation between Caesarea and Jerusalem. So for to, to the third time we hear a courtroom drama, they seem to basically all go the same way, but today we hear it actually twice. We hear it as it unfolds in verses 1 to 12, and then we hear about it a second time as, as though seeing it reflected in a mirror, or as though hearing it echoed off a distant cave wall, we hear it a second time as Porcius Festus candidly tells King Agrippa and Bernice all about it in verses um, 13 to 22. Uh, this King Agrippa is King Herod Agrippa II. Uh, if you were with us last week, this man is Drusilla's eldest brother. He is the son of King Herod I, who appears in Acts chapter 12. He's the guy who killed the Apostle James. He is the grandson of King Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist and before whom Jesus appeared. And he is the great-grandson of King Herod the Great, who reigned over Judea at the time of Jesus' birth. He's the guy who entertained the wise guys from the east and who um, did the massacre of the children in Bethlehem, Herod the Great. Well, as with his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, Herod Agrippa II is a client king. He is reigning under Roman supervision. And in this case, Agrippa II reigns over almost nothing at all. But he is in charge of the care of the temple, and he also has in his gift the position of high priest, so he is a guy with some political clout. And what's interesting about this trial, seen in verses 1 to 12, and its reflection, seen in verses 13 to 22, is that we hear something from Festus's own lips that we didn't hear during the trial. Festus says, verse 18, when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some... Points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Back in the trial itself, we didn't hear Paul mention Jesus and the resurrection. Luke summarizes his response to his accusers as this in verse 8. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Caesar. It's only now, later, on the lips of Festus that we realize that Paul must have taken the same strategy that he did the last two times when he faced these same accusers. That is, his strategy is Paul is doing his darndest to shift the focus off away from what he may or may not have done to Jesus and what he definitely did do which was rise from the dead. And we've seen Paul do this twice before. When on trial in Jerusalem before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, Paul shouts out, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And in Caesarea, Before Felix, Paul explains to him, I have the same hope in God as these men who are accusing me, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So why is Paul always trying to bring the resurrection into it? Why is he always trying to focus on the resurrection? Well, very often when people are in conflict the real issue is not on the surface. The real issue may or may not even be being mentioned. It might not be being discussed. It may not even be acknowledged or consciously even understood. I mean, just as one really obvious example at the moment, you may happen to know that the global Anglican communion is divided and in heated debate over the same-sex marriage issue. Now... Really, all that's needed in terms of discerning God's will with respect to this issue, it ought to be straightforward. All that is needed is a conversation amongst experts carried out conscientiously and with care as the different issues and ramifications are teased apart, a conversation in the context of humble prayerfulness with all this prophecy and teaching being carefully weighed by a mature body of elders. That's all that's needed. But it's not what we're seeing. What we've got is a dogfight. What we've got is a catfight. It's anything but what I've just described. Why is it such a Barney? Well, actually, because the real issue is not same-sex marriage. The the real issue is a 500-year-old, 500-year-long argument about the place of Holy Scripture in our tradition. That's why in the Anglican church it's so heated, it's so personal, it's so bitter, it's so disorderly. It's not the real issue. Or take Brexit. What was the real issue? Did 52% of the population of the United Kingdom vote to leave the EU because they shared a sophisticated philosophical position on the sovereignty of nations? Probably not. For some, it may have been, but for most, was it to do with other things? Immigration, unemployment, disorientation, xenophobia. What was the real issue? If you find yourself endlessly involved in petty arguments with your spouse or with your children over seemingly silly issues, perhaps the reason is you don't yet really know what the real issue is. What is the real issue? And if that's the case, stop and ask yourselves, what is the real issue? Paul keeps on trying to bring, to bring it back to the resurrection because he knows that actually that is the real issue. That's why they're trying to kill him. It's not because he's actually an insurrectionist or a heretic. It's because he keeps on saying that Jesus is alive. That's why they want him dead. That's why they're trying to kill him. Because if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. In churches today, you may hear that Jesus dying on the cross. You may hear that that's something that changes everything it's not true what's true is that Jesus's death on the cross is indeed the most important event in human history if and only if Jesus rose from the dead on the third day if Jesus didn't rise from the dead on the third day His death on the cross is, historically speaking, utterly meaningless. Oh, to be sure, a very sad day for his family and friends, a tragic event for his fans and disciples, but ultimately of no interest now to anyone except possibly historians of first century Jewish messianic cults. But if Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, just as he said he would, then that changes everything. It means, of all the myriad of things it means, one thing it means, one thing it means is that it means that Jesus was who he said he was. His resurrection by his Father is the vindication by the Father that everything said by the Son was true. So who did Jesus think he was? Who did Jesus say he was? Well, he said he was the Messiah, the Christ, the King. The Lord, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, if you see a king with his army advancing on your town, it's because he's making a claim. The claim he's making is that he is your king and you're going to have to bow down to him and obey him. If you see a king advancing on your town with his army, there are only two things you can do. You can prepare to defend yourself. In other words, you're going to fight against him. Well, if you're going to to choose to fight against him, that's an active response requiring fierce determination and really hard work. Alternatively, you can go out to him and surrender. But if you do that... You don't, you, don't, you don't get to sit in the shade and watch from the sidelines. No, 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 no. If you go out to, to surrender to him, you have to fall in behind him. You have to now obey him and fight for him. So that's going to be an active response requiring fierce determination and really hard work. Jesus is just such a king. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. As uh, we've looked at these final chapters in Luke's book of Acts, we've remembered um, from time to time that Luke is writing this at a time of intense Jewish persecution of the church. But the Roman persecution of the Christian church is not far off. It's just over the horizon. The Jews are persecuting Paul because they understand the implications of his gospel that Jesus rose from the dead. They remember Christ's teaching and they understand the implications of the resurrection. The Romans haven't understood yet, but they will. Festus says, verse 19, they are arguing over points of dispute about their own religion. Verse 20, I'm at a loss as to how to settle such matters. Uh, Festus is quite falsely thinking that this has nothing to do with him. He thinks they're talking about religion. Boy, is he in for a shock. Because if Jesus rose from the dead on the third day as an historical fact, then that changes everything. Everything. And it won't be long before they, the Romans, it won't be be long before they cotton on and start doing everything they can do to suppress this message. In our day... Evangelism is illegal in most Middle Eastern countries, and conversion to Christianity carries the death penalty in a lot of countries. The Nepalese government has recently made laws making it illegal to tell people about Jesus. In India and China today, the two most populous nations on earth, Christian missionaries are most decidedly unwelcome. And the respective governments go to enormous efforts to make sure that overseas internationals are not there to preach the gospel. And if it is found out that they are, they are deported swiftly. Is this because they do not understand the gospel? No, it's because they understand it very well. Arguably, in one sense, they understand it better than we do. The gospel is a message from God. And it's this. Change is coming. Fall in behind Jesus or find yourself fighting me. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is saying to those who are uncomfortable, do not fear. Change is coming. But to the comfortable... To the powerful, to those who have advantage on the basis of the disadvantage of others, God is saying, be afraid, be very afraid, for change is coming. I hope you like change. The reason that that's important is that God, who does not change, likes change. The real issue is this. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And that changes everything. Now, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If you haven't yet fallen in behind King Jesus, I understand that you're going to need extraordinary evidence to see that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just some nice religious idea, but rather an historical fact that deserves your fullest attention as your highest priority. You're going to need extraordinary evidence. I know. What evidence is there? Well, that's not a question I'm going to answer today because if you're yet to be convinced, you're in the same place as Festus, Agrippa and Bernice, and the thing to do is to come back next week and hear how it was that Paul, who once worked as the archenemy of all Christians, how it was that Paul himself became convinced of the resurrection. But for those of us who have fallen in behind King Jesus who have surrendered to him on his terms? Is our response an active response of fierce determination and hard work? Or have we deluded ourselves that we're allowed to sit in the shade on the sidelines and watch it all unfold? Are we obeying him? Because he's coming back. And when uh, the Son of Man comes in glory with all of his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needed clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus is king. The resurrection is the proof. There are only two choices. Fight for him and with him. Or against him. And the Lord be with you all.